the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I am Lee Johnson, and I'm joined by my fabulous co-hosts, Jason Reed and Rick Lee. And today we are talking about the joyous subject of death. But before we get started with that, let me go ahead and get drink orders and rants or raves from both of you. Rick, let's start with you. What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? Tonight, I'm going to go back to one of my old standbys. I'll have a Manhattan with rye, please. And today I am raving about Burt Bacharach. So Burt Bacharach passed away at the age of 92 recently, and I've taken the occasion to go back through the Burt Bacharach songbook, and my God, was that man a fucking genius when it comes to songwriting. Just unbelievable, the songs that he wrote. And so if you haven't in a while, go back and listen to some Burt Bacharach songs. Definitely. What about you, Jason? Well, I'm going to also go with an old standby, Whiskey Sour. Don't really care much about the whiskey, but definitely care that it's not sour mix and actual Mm -hmm. lemon. Um, And I'm going to rave about another Bert, my colleague, former colleague, Bert Loudon. And the reason I'm raving about him is that he's retired and he has donated money to set up a speaker series for us, for the philosophy department here at the University of Southern Maine. And, you know, it's always been a thing that's bothered me because at a small regional university, we don't really have money ever. (laughs) Um, And so we don't really have an ability to invite people. And for me, my own educational experience, both in undergrad and grad school, a lot of it was formed as much by some of the lectures I heard as Mm -hmm. the classes. And so I'm really excited to be able to offer that to our students and really beyond that to the community. I think the talks are going to be of interest to people in Portland, and I really believe that a university should be, you know, an asset to its community. So I'm really excited to be able to have this as part of what we do here at the philosophy department at the University of Southern Maine. That's cool. So sorry if that's too much of a plug there. Um, <laughs> but Lee, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? Well, I'm just going to have a bourbon on the rocks. And I am also raving today. All three of us are raving today. Yay! <laughs> I am raving about the film Triangle of Sadness. <laughs> This is a fantastic film. It features Woody Harrelson as a yacht captain who is also a Marxist, who is also a drunk, as Uh. all my favorite Marxists are. It's really a send-up of wealthy influencer culture and the myopia of that culture, but it takes several just truly absurd turns in the film. And, Mm. you know, even as I was watching it, I couldn't really decide if I was liking it or not. But now that I've had a few days to marinate in it, I think it's a fantastic film. I highly recommend it. Triangle of Sadness. And by the way, if it's about influencers, you might go back and listen to our own episode on influencers. (laughs) Nice plug. Nice plug. (laughs) See what I did there? So, Rick, I know we're talking about death today, but is there really anything else to say about it? (laughs) Well, 
I started thinking about this recently in relation to the passing of my dear friend, Philippe Van Houten, who was a philosopher in the Netherlands, who I miss dearly. And I started thinking how stupid death is. And if I can, I would like to dedicate at least my portion of this podcast to Philippe's memory. But the thing about death is that, like, spoiler alert, it's an obvious fact that we're all going to die. And I think that it belongs to the very fact of being alive that that thing that is alive is going to die. And death seems like an ultimate cancellation of living, and it's an ultimate nullification. And in the face of this, it seems like we could all ask, well, what does it matter what I'm doing if I'm going to die anyhow? The chorus in Sophocles' Oedipus at Colonus <laughs> says at a certain point that the best thing is to never have been born at all. Mm. This seems especially true if your life is filled with incredible suffering, and then in the end, you just die. And Kant was not able even to provide a reason why living is so great. And he just says, well, look, it's the parent's job to reconcile their children to their own living. But on the other hand, we have the 20th century philosopher Martin Heidegger arguing that we are only authentically existing when we are able to take on our own death as the possibility that is the condition for our existence at all. I was really influenced as an undergraduate by the book The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker, and he shows in that book that a whole chunk of Western culture has been erected just so that we could be able to deny the fact that we are all going to die. But I think in the end, we all are going to have to admit that death to a large extent is just stupid. When a loved one dies, our thoughts don't go to Heidegger's notion of authenticity, but they really just go to the fact that it really sucks. And it's incredibly painful that now there's a hole, there's a gap in my world, and that can't ever be made good again. So it's no wonder that people turn to the hope or the wish that all will be made right again in the end, something like resurrection and so on. So we should ask, what is death and what is the meaning of death? Before we get into this, let me ask the question that I raised in the introduction. Given everything you know now and given where you are, if you had a choice ahead of time whether to exist or not, what would you choose? Would you take living or would you rather not have existed in the first place? Jason, let me ask you first. I'm going to go with living. Um, and it's really hard for me to imagine, well, obviously that question is very hypothetical, but it's hard for me to imagine the perspective. I mean, this is my struggle with death. Like, I often think about to die means to not exist, and I just reach a limit of my own ability to imagine that, and I just think, I can't even think about that. And I find myself mm. in the position that some philosophers have taken, you know, where death is, I am not, so I can't really have any opinion about death, or Spinoza's line, you know, a free man thinks of nothing less than of death. You don't really know when it's coming. All you know is that it'll, in some sense, nullify your existence, so it kind of remains outside the horizon of my thoughts. So given that life is pretty much all I know, I can't help but choose to exist. Lee, what about you? Well, Jason makes a good point. I suppose I agree with him that life is the only thing that I know. But 
to try to answer the question, I mean, so first of all, I should say I've had a pretty bad year. <laughs> and I think that, you know, one of the things that obviously one thinks about when you consider the possibility of having never been born is being spared from whatever mm-hmm. kinds of poverty or anxiety or loneliness or sadness or hurt that you've experienced, suffering that you've experienced. And certainly human life is hard work and it involves a lot of suffering. But even in addition to the potential for personal suffering or personal struggles that are just inherent in the human condition, I think there are good ethical and environmental considerations that support the argument for never having been born. You know, the fact that human beings are responsible for a wide range of environmental and social problems, including climate change and war and exploitation and the mistreatment of non-human animals, you know, seems to suggest that our very existence is a source of harm to others and to the planet. There's too many of us. So, Mm. yeah, I mean, I think as objective as I can be about it, I think I'd have to say the wiser choice would be to have never been born. Yeah, I think I agree with you, Lee. I think that you know, had someone played out for me ahead of time, and and now obviously there's a contradiction here, right? Because I can't be asked before I exist, but <laughs> suspend that for a moment. If someone were to lay all of this out for me, I think in so many ways the choice would be I'd rather not. Mm-hmm. Because as, as you were pointing out, Lee, there's all sorts of suffering that all of us go through. And some of it is fairly extreme, but I don't think anyone doesn't have some suffering. I think, as you put it, we're having a tremendous impact on this planet and on other living things. And we're having a really awful impact frequently on the well-being of others. So I think for those reasons, if it were laid out ahead of time, I would even go one step further. I think the only ethical choice is to say no. But I also take a bit of Jason's point that now that I'm here, the decision in front of me is not whether not to go on anymore. As Jason said, the contemplation of my own non-existence, having already been living, is something that I can't even get my head around. It's not that I'm afraid of it. I just can't get my head around it. And so I don't, you know, given where I am now, I'm not sure there's any decision in front of me, really. I mean, I know that Albert Camus says at the beginning of the myth of Sisyphus that the only philosophical decision is whether or not to kill oneself. I think I disagree with that. So I take both of your points, but I I think I'm with you, Lee. There's a lot that follows from our existence that isn't really great. I want to push back a little bit on your claim that now that you're here, there's really no decision to make because without going full Camus on you, I mean, it is a decision every day to keep living. And, you know, often it's a hard decision to make. And most of the time it's a relatively easy decision to make, or it doesn't appear as a decision at all. It just appears as continuing on business as usual. But I don't think that that's entirely true that now that you're here, there isn't a decision to make. Yeah, I take your point. I was considering mostly that context you mentioned in which, you know, there are days in which it doesn't even appear to me as if it's a question. Mm. And not to go into too much detail, but that's certainly for me, not every day. So there are times when I am faced with the decision, but there are also days in which I'm not faced with the decision. But what I think, and I said this in the introduction, is that apart from humans, 
When I look at living things, it seems to me that part of the condition of living is, I don't know how to put this except going on. Not the denial of death, but not working on the horizon of death is just the way living things live. I don't think living things would live if they were constantly contemplating death. Hmm. And I have to admit, I am not a Heideggerian, and in many ways, I'm an anti-Heideggerian. It seems to me that the emphasis on death is the wrong emphasis for so many reasons. There are two other emphases that are more important or just as important. One is, rather than death, why not finitude? Like, I'm finite in all sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. I can't fly. I can't transport to the other side of the globe instantly. There are all sorts of ways in which I experience my own finitude. And the other, and I think, Lee, you pointed to this most directly, suffering is way more worthy of contemplation than death is. Mm. I don't find that death is as much of an ethical problem as suffering is. But suffering is something that you have to endure, whereas death is something that you can only contemplate. You don't endure death. You endure dying. Yes, for sure. But here's something I do agree with Heidegger about, that each one's death is their own. Mm -hmm. Your death isn't my death. And in a way, I suppose I could contemplate your death, but not in the same way you could. And so each one's death is their own. Whereas I think suffering is something that I can and should ethically contemplate, particularly in another. Like, I should concern myself with your suffering. I should concern myself with the suffering of others. And with the death of others. I mean, I feel like one of the issues I have with the whole Heideggerian thing is that as I'm alive, the thing that concerns me is the losses I anticipate of the people I care about. And what it's going to mean when they die and whether or not I'm going to feel like were there things unsaid, were there things I should have you know, addressed in my life to them that feel like would have been the right way to treat them and act towards them. My own death, because it is the sense that I'm not going to be present for it, like I'm not really as concerned. I spend more waking time worried about the losses of people and animals that are dear to me than I do really worrying about my own death. I do think that's going to suck too. <laughs> but I think that for me, it seems like Heidegger got one thing really wrong. That the living worries more about the death of the people around us than we do about our own death. Because I know I'm going to have to endure some of those. And I'm not sure how my death is going to come. It may be something that is hopefully not filled with pain and suffering. It may be something that I'm never, ever going to be aware of. I may be gone before it even happens. You know, that's my sort of Spinoza sense of the indeterminate nature of my death is places out beyond what I can think. I just don't know. Mm. And I can't know. But I do know that, you know, I'll probably lose my parents. I'll probably lose my dog is not going to live as long as I do. And these things worry me more on some level because I can imagine them. Mm -hmm. mm. Because I can imagine that loss. I can't really imagine the loss of my own existence because I'm not there to experience it. I think I agree with you, Jason. And in that sense, I think each person's death is definitely not their own. I mean, I think what Heidegger said is it's their own most possibility. Yes, I agree right. with that. Each person's death is their own unique possibility. But I think that each person's death actually is everyone else's. It's like funerals. They're not for the dead. They're for the living. Right. And I think that, you know, maybe one thing that we kind of just need to get on the table here, Jason sort of gave us a little peek behind his curtain, but 
what do we think death is? Do we believe that there's something after it or not? I mean, I think once my death happens, I am no longer. And so I don't think I'll experience it. And for that reason, it won't matter to me what anybody else thinks of it or what they, you know, whether they mourn or not. So my experience with death as something that is sad or fearful or causes suffering is only about other people's deaths, just like Jason said. But what about you guys? What do you think death is or what do you think it entails? I was going to add, Lee, that going back to our episode on memory, you also have the position that you will be no longer in some cases if you are still living, but you are no longer there. For me, death is death, and there's nothing after that except rotting. (laughs) I won't be aware of that. And I think that even if one does have a belief in the afterlife, I think one should bracket that for ethical reasons and not act as if there is an afterlife. I think that muddies the ethical waters. That's a strong claim. Can you tease that out a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. I think what I mean is that there's a way in which if there is an afterlife, I find it difficult to understand how death is real death. And when death is not real death, I worry that the ethical stakes of many of our actions are reduced because there's an irreality with a certain level of violence. There's an irreality with a certain level of pain and harm that I could cause to others that I would like to keep on the table. And I think we do that by saying death is an absolute limit, that there's nothing beyond, there's no coming back, that's the end. And so you better think twice before you bring someone to the end of existence. Okay, but devil's advocate here. I mean, obviously, there are many people who would say that a belief in the afterlife is what motivates ethical behavior, that the reason I have concern for other people or I want to diminish suffering or harm that I do while I'm here and increase happiness and good while I'm here is because of, depending on what sort of afterlife you believe in, rewards or the possibility of a better next life or at least avoidance of the fiery pits of hell. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I know that's the argument, but there's something I think profoundly unethical about that in the sense that then my doing good is a matter of my own self-interest. And I don't think I need an afterlife in order to understand that suffering in myself or others is wrong. I understand quite well that suffering is wrong. And I don't need an afterlife to goad me into doing the right thing just in order for me to either be rewarded or to come back in a better life, which is, again, a reward, or at least avoid the fiery pits of hell, which, again, is a reward. Right. So I say this is not an ethical relationship. This is an exchange relationship. I now have entered into a commercial relationship with all other things. Jason, you never answered what you think death is. I mean, Lee said I kind of was giving it away. Yeah, I'm, it's the end. Big dirt nap. You never wake up. Uh, you know, I try to wrestle with the fact that it's the end for us, but we do have effects that exceed our existence. And I do think sometimes about, you know, I would like to believe that I've lived such a life that someone, when I'm gone, is going to think that it's a loss. I'm going to think it's a loss. I I will too. But, you know, so I do think that we continue to have effects in other people. But as far as anything being me is gone, it's it's all over. 
and there's nothing after that. But in that case, I really wonder, and maybe this is just splitting hairs that in the end are not worth being split, but I really wonder if it is the fact that it's the actual death of the other that affects me and that I think about and worry about, or if it is what I referred to earlier, like this absolute hole Mm -hmm. that is now shoved in the middle of our world. So it's not really the death, it's the emptiness, the loss, the hole in the world that is irreparable. That's what I contemplate. I can't really contemplate what their death means, Mm -hmm. or even really their, well, I suppose in a way that's what we mean when we say their non-existence. But as Derrida said in one of his funeral essays or orations, which, by the way, Michael Nass and his wife, Pascal Bro collected together and then eventually translated into English, it comes from the title of that collection, Each Time Unique, The End of the World. And he says that this is what we experience when someone close to us dies, each time unique, it is the end of the world. And that's what I think I can think about in relation to the other. And maybe I'm splitting hairs to say that's not really the thinking of what it means for them to die or be dead. Yeah, I think part of what Derrida is really capturing in that claim is an emphasis on the interconnectedness of human life. It's not that just a person's death impacts the world because it's now an absence. It's that the whole world has to reconfigure itself, right? Like everyone Mm -hmm. who had a life of meaning making, one thread of which ran through you, when you die, that thread is not there. the, The fabric has to be rewoven. Yeah. And it won't be rewoven as the same fabric. Right. It's a different fabric now. I think you also lose a part of yourself. I mean, you lose, and this is kind of, you know, territory of like Freud's mourning and melancholy. You lose the part of yourself that related to that person. Right. Like you lose a friend. Sometimes you realize you also lose the kind of conversations you could only have with that friend. And that part of your mourning is mourning that, that you're going to have to kind of reconfigure yourself as well, and it's a kind of healing that'll probably leave a scar if the person had a huge impact on you, because the way you relate to that person or what that person made possible in you is gone. You'll have to figure out a way to kind of contain it, but you'll always have that lingering sense of like, oh, if so-and-so was still around, this would be something they would want to hear about, and they'll never be there to hear about it again. Yeah, and here I think it's really important to talk about metaphorical deaths too. I mean, so non-biological deaths, because Mm -hmm. those same kinds of experiences happen when people are removed from our worlds in other ways or for other reasons, Mm -hmm. right? Social deaths. Mm. Right. I think this is part of Spinoza's thought. I mean, everyone quotes a line about, a free man thinks of nothing less than of death. But there's also this sense that Spinoza talks about how death is only one of the many great transformations you can go through in your existence. And there are people in my life who, as far as I know, are still among the living, but because of some reasons, they are out of my life. And in some sense, as the old saying goes, they are dead to me or I'm dead to them. And I mean, I guess one could argue that I could have lingering in the back of my head some thought that there could be some reparation in some way. We But Rick says you have to bracket those ideas of the afterlife if you're going to be an <laughs> <Yes>. animal person. <laughs> 
it is a kind of it is a kind of afterlife. It is, yeah. It is yeah. a kind of afterlife. And it's and it's probably just as likely as being true in some <laughs> yeah. of these situations. Yeah. But okay, but now now that causes me to rethink the extremity of one of the positions I took earlier. <laughs> Not that one, but when I pushed back in saying that the death of the other is not something I can contemplate. And here, Jason, I think you're showing that in these metaphorical deaths, you know, like they're dead to me, as long as they are not actually dead, there is still the possibility that world could be made whole again. And I think the actual death of the other is the end of that possibility of the world ever being made whole again in the way it was. Okay, I want to push back on two things here. So one, I don't want us to say, I was, this is my fault because I said it first, but I I don't think that we should say metaphorical deaths. I think we should say non-biological deaths because I think that we are, we, we mean death. I also think that the argument that you're making now, Rick, though, does seem to me that you're just taking biological death as a finality that does not permit for any possible afterlives. Whereas you're allowing for possible afterlives in social deaths. And I think that, you know, somebody could say to you the same thing. No, this person is really dead to me or I am really dead to them. There is no possibility of a revitalization. Okay. But in that case, what you're saying is that I could have a relationship with someone who I consider to be dead to me right now, but that it will never be the relationship we had before whatever caused this death. I'm saying that the fact that you are so certain of that possibility, there could be some kind of resurrection of a relationship between the two of you is a belief structure not unsimilar to people who believe in the afterlife. Hmm. It's a way of minimizing the finality of social death, non-biological death. And I would say it's also similar to the way in which, I mean, even people who don't believe in the afterlife, like myself, sometimes have a kind of unthought thought about like, things are going to just keep on going Mm -hmm. on. And I have to kind of remind myself, no, that's not going to happen. Like the other day, I was just sort of thinking to myself, you know what? I always wanted to try scuba. That seems interesting to me. And then I I had this thought where I was like, yeah, and I better get on that soon (laughs) because like I can't – I'm not getting any – I'm not getting any – I'm not getting any younger and obviously aging is separate from related to death. But there's – but I realized that at the moment I sort of caught myself recognizing that I have to like, you know, incorporate my own finitude and my own thoughts about things. There are things that I keep saying, yeah, I'm going to get to that and I have to begin to recognize that I'm not going to get to all those things, Mm -hmm. you know, and that sometimes I don't really not think I'm going to die, but sometimes there's a certain sense in which I work on an assumption of a kind of linear time to sort of extending forever. Yeah, this is how I approach my retirement account. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've got like 50 more years to contribute to it in my mind. (laughs) I'm not a financial planner, Lee, so you take my advice with a grain of salt, but I think that's not a good way to think about your retirement account. No, that's true. That ship has sailed. (laughs) But like, who us are going to be able to retire anyway. I could retire for a pretty good year right about now, but it's just, I would have to know I'm going to die a year after. Right, right. Well, that's a whole other issue. The weird thing about retirement is this weird sense that you have to kind of plan for something you cannot possibly know, like how many more years do you have? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny that we're talking about this because the end of our careers is also a death. 
And it's a finality, Mm -hmm. you know, and of course, yeah, we're going to talk with colleagues and we're going to think philosophical things and some people are still going to write and publish, but the career is over and there's nothing after that. There's no more career after that. And, you know, I experienced this most acutely with friends who live in countries where they have a mandatory retirement age. Mm -hmm. And so like in the Netherlands, you turn 65 You have three months after that and you're out. They retire you. It's not like you retire. They retire you. And if that's in the middle of the term, too bad. You're (laughs) you're gone. The hole's already dug. You got to go in. (laughs) Exactly. And your students are like, what did we do? And like, who cares? We're going on. Yeah. I have two very close friends who have experienced this and it was devastating for them because suddenly their life was cut off and they had to begin a new life that they had never contemplated really, nor could they, as I think Jason was pointing out. But here they are, and now they're in a new world, living a new life, and they don't talk to their colleagues anymore. And not because of them, but because you know their colleagues are busy and they don't have time to talk to people who aren't colleagues and people's lives move on. And there you are, and you're, you know, you are like the living dead to them. And so I think that's a form of non-biological death that is really serious. And I think it's in line with a version of what Jason was giving a general expression to, namely that there's a self I had that is now dead. And for me, I got to tell you, it's the scuba diving self. <laughs> that self is dead. Like, I am not I am not a scuba diving Rick anymore. It, it just, I mean, I never was, but I could have. But I can't anymore. He's dead to you. (laughs) He's dead to me. Or the marathon running, Rick. (laughs) Hey, listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second... Hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. So it seems like in that first section, all three of us were fairly unconcerned with our own deaths, biological deaths, but we wanted to point to the biological deaths of other people as being incredibly important. So let me open the door up to talk a little bit more about that. Well, Jason, you mentioned earlier Freud's morning and melancholy, and I was thinking in relation to that, I I know that there might be distinctions we could make here, but it is always weird to me the way in which we behave toward one another when someone dies that we love, that we get very awkward around one another and people say ridiculous things like, oh, within time you'll get over it or Mm -hmm. after a while you'll heal. And sometimes I want to say, fuck you. Mm -hmm. This is Mm -hmm. a hole that cannot be repaired. So- Then I wonder, what is this we're doing in this mourning or grieving? I didn't have a lot of experience with death until I was actually quite older. So I had great-grandparents, my great-great-grandparents even, when I was in college. And as a matter of fact, I didn't lose my 
grandparents, I lost three of my four grandparents while I was in graduate school. So, you know, in my 30s. I mean, I think maybe somebody in my high school died in a drunk driving accident, but it wasn't a friend of mine, you know, so I just didn't really have a lot of experience with people dying. And I don't know that even now that I think that I'm very good at it. It makes me very uncomfortable. You know, I don't like to go to funerals. I almost never will look at, for example, a body in an open casket Mm -hmm. funeral. I have Mm -hmm. a real aversion to imprinting that image of death in my mind, especially of someone that I know and loved. So to me... The immediate experience of somebody that I love dying is just shock and disbelief. And it's actually much, much, much later that I come to reckon with the absence and the sorrow and really begin grieving. I was younger, high school at the most, when my grandfather died, and he had three sisters. I believe all of them were still alive at the time. And at his wake... So I come from a Catholic family on all sides. And so we have a wake where for at least a couple of days, the body is out. You can go and look at it. People come and visit and and so on. At the wake, one of my aunts, his sister, kissed the corpse. Mm. And I thought that was the most disgusting thing I had ever seen. And looking back on it, part of it is, I think what you were saying, Lee, that death was something that was so alien that I didn't even know what this thing was in the casket. But I was pretty sure it wasn't my grandpa, and I was pretty sure you oughtn't be kissing it. Mm. (laughs) And yet there she was kissing her brother. And I know that there used to be a time when, particularly among European cultures, There was a kind of intimacy with death, that your loved one who died would be in your house and you'd be living with the corpse for a while and, you know, people would come over and you would have meals and we don't have that intimacy anymore. And I think it just is actually really weird. Yeah, Mm. it's so sterile and so commercial now. Mm. Yeah. I'm with Lee in the sense that I feel very awkward around people who've lost someone. And and part of the awkwardness has to the sense that, as you were saying, Rick, like I feel like there's a hole in their life and I don't know like anything I could say just seems like meaningless and insipid in confronting that. Although I do think that sometimes that may be a wrong way of thinking about it as well, that, you know, I was just watching Mark Maron's comedy special. I mean, she talks about grieving his girlfriend who died. He's like, you know, it doesn't matter what stupid things you say, just show up for someone who's grieving, just Mm. be there. And I think that part of my, you know, sense is I focus too much on what I'm saying and rather the the presence and the fact that you're saying something, that everything seems stupid, but that's maybe because I'm looking at things the wrong way and that partly what people need is not just a thing to say, but just someone to show up and, as Mark Barron also said, bring food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, you know, someone to sort of take care of someone through that moment, which is more meaningful than saying, you know, whatever things you might say to commemorate someone's life or something like that. When my dad died, I felt very awkward when people would say, I'm sorry. 
because, and this is my own psychology. When I hear the words, I'm sorry, I think they're apologizing for something they've done. Mm -hmm. And so like my initial reaction would be to say, but it's not your fault. (laughs) But what they mean, I think, is this acknowledgement of what, you know, I started calling and we've been calling this absolute whole, right? Mm -hmm. Derrida says the world is ended. And I appreciate the sort of simple acknowledgement of that, just to say it hurts that the world has ended. And I just want you to know, I know that you're hurting and that the world has ended for you in a way that it hasn't ended for me. It's another way of just showing up, right? Mm -hmm. I think another thing that is a common symptom of grieving is anger This is something I've experienced in particular when I've learned that students of mine have died. It seems so unfair, so unjust that a young person has died. And, you know, I haven't I'm not old enough to be at the age where my friends are dying and I haven't had a lot of close friends die. But there's a real kind of like indignance at hearing one of my former students have died. You know, that's just in terms of biological death. I think it's much more common when we're talking about non-biological deaths, when, you know, a relationship is lost or whatever, that there's that same kind of indignance and anger about it. You're really mad at the whole. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I sometimes then get frustrated at the sort of psychological approach that is taken, whether it's, you know, the Kubler-Ross stages of grief. And, you know, of course, there are five. There are only five. All of us go through exactly Mm -hmm. these five. But also this thing like, okay, yes, you're angry now, but you have to work through your anger. And part of me wants to say, Again, fuck you. Like maybe anger is the appropriate response to the fact that there's this big honking hole that didn't used to be there and no one can do a damn thing about it. Mm. And that makes me angry. And so I get frustrated at the psychologizing of grief and mourning. But I think your discussion of the anger about the loss of a student brings up an interesting question about death. And that is, you know, do we want to acknowledge something like what a a life well lived is. I mean, because I think part of the anger with a student is that their lives were cut short and it seems so wrong. But it seems to me that the flip side of that must be an ability to sometimes say someone lived a good life. You know, I find it weird because now we live in the age of sort of mass mediated mourning when every time a celebrity dies, mm-hmm. that everyone like starts posting tributes and start talking about how sad it is. Hashtag RIP. Well, yeah, well, if some somebody's like, you know, Burt Bacharach, for example, you know, yeah. I don't want to piss off Dionne Warwick or anything. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like, can we say that was a pretty good life, pretty good run? Yeah. You know, like yeah. 82, 82 some years. Like, I know it's sad in the sense that people are thinking about what his music might have meant to them and the loss of that. But like, it seems strange to me that people seem to treat every death as if, like, anyone could have had a few more years. And, I mean, I know I'm not going to say this when I'm – if I ever get to be 82 that I'm going to be ready to go. I'll probably be clinging like all cling to life. But it does seem to me that part of our weird denial of death is our inability to think of, like, what a good run looks like, yeah. you know. And also what are more important than living on. Like, exactly, to me, yeah. if I was presented with this choice of, like, this many more years with – you know, full use of my mental and physical capabilities, maybe no scuba diving, but, you know, at least being mobile and able to get around versus like a much longer period with suffering and loss of physical and mental abilities and so on. 
I would clearly pick the former, but it seems to me that part of our tendency around death is to kind of privilege the quantitative over the qualitative. Mm -hmm. And in the quantitative, it's just like, you know, what Aristotle says about money, you're always going to want a little more, just like you're always going to want a few more years. But I think that there's a real loss of an ability to think in terms of, and maybe it's because we live in an era where medicine is extending life, but our own conditions of our lives are depreciating at the same time as we lose control and autonomy and abilities to do meaningful things that we focus on the quantitative. But I'd rather, much rather think about the qualitative dimension of existence than the pure quantitative extension. Mm. I completely agree, Jason. I am way more afraid of a death that comes too late than a death that comes too early, which is really not a fear of death. It's a fear of suffering. Right. Which goes back to my point that I, I think suffering is the more both philosophically and certainly ethically relevant category. As I've said many times on this podcast, I'm influenced by Adorno. And, you know, Adorno says that this is the new ethical imperative, no more suffering. Mm -hmm. I think that's not a bad way to live. Whereas I think we're all going to die. And so no one could say no more death, right? And I don't even think that's an ethical imperative, no more death. I think the how and the why is much more important, which then gets us into the issue of suffering, than that there is a death. I agree with both of you that I would much rather a death come too soon than too late, for sure. But just to get back to our focus on the death of other people, I have a question for both of you, which is, what, if anything, do we owe the dead? I was thinking of this in relation to two philosophers. There's something interesting about Aristotle's claim that we can't judge a life until it's over. There does seem to be something right about that. But obviously, then the constructing of what that life was and the judging of it is not the task of the dead one, because after all, they're dead. Mm -hmm. It's the task of those of us who go on living after that. And so we have a certain relation to taking up that life and making good on it, as it were, making of it a good life, if at all possible. I want to hold open the possibility that that's not possible. And then the other thing that comes up is a line that is in Walter Benjamin's On the Concept of History, where he says that those who came before us, we breathe the same air they did. And our life here on earth was awaited or expected by them. I wonder if that doesn't also mean we have a certain responsibility to make good on something like the hopes that our ancestors were striving toward. So I would say we do owe something to the dead. We owe an acknowledgement of their memory and who they were and what they meant. And I think one of the things that troubles me about our sort of avoidance of death is this tendency to kind of forget about people as if they never existed, hmm. rather than to talk about them and so on. And I add, would add to this that we also owe – maybe we don't owe them, but we owe the living some kind of honesty about who they were. I'm really tired of this tendency to turn every person who dies into some kind of saint mm. as if that's who they really were. I'm sorry. There are some bad people walking around on this earth. I mean, I have the coup song, I Want to Piss on Your Grave, queued up for when Kissinger dies. <laughs> Cheney. I have a whole list of people. It is queued up for them. And I'm going to play it as soon as I hear that news. And I'm going to do a little dance. Mm -hmm. 
I think it's very bizarre, you know, this whole like don't speak ill of the dead. Yeah, I understand that as an ethical imperative around like family members. I'm not going to bring up bad memories of whomever if I go to their funeral. But when it comes to people who've existed and had public lives, who have done some of that harm, we were talking about the humanity has brought upon this planet. I think it's important to be honest about that and not sweep it under the rug under the idea of some kind of bizarre propriety. There are some people whose death I plan to celebrate. This is what Charles used to call the truth teller that he thought should be at the funerals of certain right. people to stand up and say, this motherfucker. <laughs> but Jason, would you say that we owe that to the dead or we owe that to the living to tell the truth about rat bastards? Oh, we owe it to the living. I mean, in some sense, you know, this is the paradox that anything we do to the dead is actually done to the living. No one gets to see who shows up at their funeral. Except for Huckleberry Finn. I was going to yeah. just say that. <laughs> <laughs> To some extent, we do everything for the living, but we also do that in maintaining the memory and our commitment to those who have passed, I guess, at the same time. Yeah. You know, I hate saying I'm sorry at funerals as well. I do like the phrase I often hear it in Jewish communities, like, may their memory be a blessing. Mm -hmm. You know, to me, that is a much more like there's a sense in which they have a memory. There's some stuff that's always going to impact you positively. You want to not lose that. That always seemed to be a better sense that I'm sorry because, you know, as Rick said, like, is it something you want to confess? Did you do something here? <laughs> in which case, maybe more of an I'm sorry might be necessary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that when somebody is grieving the death of a loved one, there just isn't anything to say. Oh, yeah. There isn't yeah. anything yeah. that you could say. Now, that said, eulogies are in my top three favorite literary forms. Mm. A good mm. eulogy is a work of art. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, this is going to sound like I'm, what is it called? Log rolling? When you're bragging about yourself, is that called log roll? Where did that come from? I don't know what the kids call it these days. So I don't want to toot my own horn to, to use the <laughs> okay. old-fashioned way. Understood. But at the last meeting of the Society for Phenomenology and Existential Philosophy, I say that for Dave, my brother-in-law, because he wouldn't know what SPEP is. I was asked to give a memorial to Richard Bernstein, who was one of my teachers. And so I worked a bit on it. It was important to me and so on. But I ran into Alan Schrift, a friend of mine in the bar after, and he pulled me aside and he said, you know, Rick, I wish that someone would speak about me like you spoke about Dick when I'm dead. And I think what he really wanted was I called Bernstein a philosopher from New York. And he said, I want people to say that about me. I said, Alan, if I'm still alive, I will say you were a philosopher from New York. But I agree with you, Lee. I love eulogies. I think they can be incredibly moving. I think they can speak an awful lot of truth. So, yeah, I agree. Well, speaking of eulogies, I have this exercise that I do in my medical ethics class where I have my students fill out an advanced directive. You know what I'm talking about, right? Where they yeah. have to sort of answer all these questions about what kind of life support they want and to what extent and, you know, all of these sorts of things, organ donation. And I put some extra questions on there as well. But at the end of this form that I give them, this advanced directive form, I give them a paragraph to write their own eulogy. And I think it is a good exercise to think about what they would want 
said about them after mm. they die. But if I could just share my most hilarious line from this assignment, <laughs> by the way, they don't put their names on their forms or their eulogies. And mm. when we mix them up and pass them back out and read the form and the eulogy and just kind of talk about this anonymous person, right? And their choices and that sort of thing. But the eulogy is helpful in like giving this anonymous person who filled out this advanced directive form a life of personality, you know? Right. But anyway, I did have this one student one semester, and of course I don't know who it was because it didn't have a name on it, but wrote this just really beautiful eulogy about how they were an athlete and they loved their family and they really wanted to contribute to the world in X, Y, and Z way. And then the last line said, and please somebody tell my sister that I have $2,000 in the milk carton at the back of my freezer. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, whoever that was, don't give us your address. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and don't acknowledge who we are. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. So we started talking about the notion that death is somehow important. One's own death is important to contemplate. And we ran away from that pretty quickly. But I think before we get out of here, I'd like to talk a little bit about if we three so agree that the death of the other is way more worthy of contemplating and way more important to contemplate than one's own death. Why do these philosophers seem concerned about death in relation to being an authentically existing human being? Why is Ernest Becker so concerned about denying death and the consequences of denying death? I guess the way to sum it up is, why are there so many philosophers who seem to think that one's own death is really important to think about philosophically when we've moved away from it so quickly? I do think in some small part that this might be a generational thing or an epochal thing. Mm. For centuries, death was much more immediate and ugly and pressing Mm -hmm. and unpredictable than it is now. I mean, I said earlier that death is sterile and commercial now, and I do think that that's true. I also think that there's a lot out there that whether you believe in an afterlife or not, sort of hangs the carrot in front of you that you might be able to live much longer than you think you will, or maybe Mm. even forever. We also have more control over our memories after we die through social media and, you know, massive amounts of data. So I think that it really is different. The idea of death as this 
big black cloaked figure knocking on our door and pointing out his bony <laughs> finger and saying, come with me now, is just not really the death that people in the 21st century confront. That's a really important point. And I, you know, I was sort of thinking a lot of these philosophers, well, I've only mentioned two, but many of the philosophers who I think we could also add to this list experienced World War One, either directly or their family members experienced World War One. And even then, death was much more immediate. You know, how many U.S. troops died in Afghanistan? How remote were all of those deaths to us that we never saw? And so it seems like in all sorts of ways, death is no longer as intimate an experience as it once was. And so I think you're onto something, Lee, that there is something in, different about our experience of death. Yeah, like our country has been at war for the entirety of our students' lives, and they have never seen one dead service member on their television or in their newspapers. Yeah, or even casket for that matter. Mm -hmm. I think that the two ethical imperatives that sometimes people like to derive from death, whether it be the sort of Heideggerian one of recognize your own finitude and sort of act authentically in light of that, or the one we've been talking about where you have to recognize that everyone around you might be the last time you see them. They're kind of like impossible imperatives to actually live through. You can't really live your life like you're going to die. I mean, you could. You'd like run up your credit card bills and do all kinds of stuff. But most of our life is spent and has to be spent on the assumption that tomorrow I'll be here. Mm -hmm. We have to act in order for our jobs to function, society to function. But I do think that there is the notion – Martin Hagelin talks about this in his book, This Life – of recognizing finitude, of that everyone on the earth that you meet, to put it abruptly, is living through their one chance at happiness on this planet, their one chance. And to me, thinking about finitude in the sense that everyone only is here for a short amount of time and that's it could change. I mean, like for me, it means thinking that like people are spending way too much time working at unnecessary bullshit jobs, see our episode bullshit jobs, and other <laughs> sorts of things in their life that recognizing that life is short and that we don't know how long it's going to be and life is all we get seems to be a much more workable kind of notion than trying to think about my own death or the death of everyone around me as a constant presence. Just the fact that this is it. It doesn't last that long. Because I do think there is a tendency in a lot of our thinking, going back to my scuba example, of kind of just assuming that we'll always have time to get to something. We mm -hmm. think about it in terms of our own lives. We think about it in terms of other people's lives. And I think we should take that out of our thinking and recognize that the only thing we know is that we're here now and there's no guarantee beyond that. We're sort of pulled in two directions. The one direction, as you were saying, Jason, is that, you know, we always think tomorrow's another day, right? Isn't that the last line of Gone with the Wind? Yeah. Tomorrow will be another day. And like, I love this passage in the Indian epic, the Mahabharata, where there's, you know, one of these quizzes that is depicted, for example, in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where they're asked a question and if they answer it, they can go forward. If not, they're thrown off the bridge. And this question is, what's the greatest wonder? And it turns out that one of the answers, there are many. No, there's only one answer to this question. There are many questions. The answer, it turns out, is each day death strikes us and yet we live as though we're immortal. Mm -hmm. I think that that's the sort of pull that we live, that we recognize we have only one shot at being happy. We kind of do recognize there's going to come a time when tomorrow isn't another day. And yet there's something about striving for that happiness, working through the one shot we have that seems to kind of require that we think we're going to go on forever. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I agree with most of everything that you both are saying. I guess maybe the one place where I might want to depart is that I don't think that life is short. I don't think that's our experience of life. I think Mm -hmm. that life is too long and too slow now. You know, I mean, people are middle-aged for 50 years. That used to be a whole life. People are dying for 20 years. You know, I do think that life is not short enough, honestly. Mm. I mean, that doesn't erase anything else you said, that it's still the case that we only have one of them and we're trying to make it meaningful. And we are, for the most part, kind of assuming that tomorrow, you know, the sun will rise again and we'll be here to see it. But I do think that with human life extension has come the kind of individual alteration in our attitudes towards our own finitude. It's sort of like saying, what does it feel like to be in a big room? And there's a difference between what it feels like to be in a big room where you can see where the walls are and be in a room so big that you can't even see the walls. Mm. Like, you know, they're there. You know, if you start going that at some point you're going to hit the wall. But it's just this kind of long nothingness between you and the wall. Yeah. My grandfather died very shortly after my grandmother did. And my grandmother was always the healthy one of the two. My grandfather had heart problems. He smoked from the time he was five years old until he died. And after my grandmother died unexpectedly and and was a shock, you know, maybe not even a year later, he said to my mom one day, you know, I think I need to go to the hospital. And a few days later, he was dead. And my mom said to the doctor, should we do an autopsy? And the doctor said, you know, that's up to you. But I'll tell you what he died of. He died of having lived his life. (laughs) It was done. And so I always look back and I think my grandfather, especially after his wife died, he was like, I've done it. I've done my life. And so now I'm just going to go. And he did. Yeah. And he died arguing for a cigarette. (laughs) (laughs) Well, guys, this was much less depressing than I expected it to be. So (laughs) this was an actually great conversation about death. But Rick, you got any final thoughts you want to leave us with? I still insist on what I said at the beginning. I think death is stupid. Jason? I'm going to say, you know, death can't live with it, can't live without it. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't Jason say that about every topic? (laughs) Every every topic. (laughs) What about you, Lee? I don't have anything to say about death. I mean, I guess I don't think it's stupid. I agree that we can't live with it, can't live without it. I don't know. I mean, I think that it's honestly not something that I'm afraid of, but not something that I think about that much. At any rate, with that said, I do want to let our listeners know that if you don't want this podcast to die (laughs) and leave an irreparable hole in your lives and your podcast list, please do visit our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. And so if one of you guys could call us a ride home, I am going to get online and book us some scuba lessons. (laughs) (laughs) I'm now thinking that the only reason Lee insisted on changing from metaphorical death to non-biological death was so that she could convince our listeners that unless they support the podcast, it will die. It will die. (laughs) (laughs) I will call a ride for us. I'm afraid that it might be a hearse. (laughs) Bye, guys. Bye. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.